Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Amla Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Wilder, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The NY Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another exciting episode of NucleCast. Of course, as always, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have a great guest, of course. I'm talking about Dr. Alex Littlefield, who is the Chief of Staff and Fellow at the National Institute for Deterrent Studies. Now, Alex is a particularly good guest because he earned his Ph.D. in Taiwan at one of the major universities in Taiwan and then spent the next 20 years living in both Taiwan and mainland China. And so he knows the language knows the customs, knows the culture, and understands China in a way that most, well, even most China experts don't understand uh, China because he spent more time there than, you know, just about anyone. So Alex, welcome to NucleCast. Happy to be here. And thank you for that very generous introduction, Adam. So one of the things that I appreciate most about your background and experience is that whenever we've talked in the past about Taiwan and the CCP and and the, what they aspire to, it's that you always add elements to that understanding that I don't get anywhere else. Because, you know, you've, as you've told me, you know, you've sat and had cigars with, you know, the princelings of the, the Chinese Communist Party and and you understand people and you're, you know, you, you focus heavily on understanding people. And so I was hoping that we could dig deeper in this podcast about the CCP and Xi Jinping and the leadership of China and just better understand what it is that they really aspire to sort of dispel any kind of biases that we may have and understand what they're really after and what their aspirations are. Where do they begin? Where do they end? And so let's, let me just sort of open it up to you as you read and understand the CCP, the Chinese communist party, Xi Jinping, and you know, the leadership of China, what are their aspirations? What do they want to accomplish? You know, where does it begin and end? And what do you see them willing to do in the years ahead to achieve those goals? Okay, that's a plateful there, and we'll break that down. The short answer is that they want to um, become a regional hegemon and ultimately sort of a global hegemon. If you think back to the, the German Deutsches Lied, the Deutsches, Deutschland über alles und der Welt, that's kind of what China's aiming for, to be like China over everything, China over the world. And in some ways, that's literally over the world because there's the moon. And apparently there's parts, they're claiming the moon as their um, kind of hands-off territory now. But it starts closer to home, and that's with the South China Sea and the Nine Dash Line, which pretty much says all of the South China Sea belongs to China. 
And where does this come from? It comes from the idea that, you know, that China as a central kingdom, China has been the leader in Asia before, it's going to be the leader again. And with today's technology, today's ability to project, there's no reason to limit themselves to just Asia. And to do, to do that, though, the first thing they have to do is get the U.S. out of there, and they have to gain control of Taiwan for um, some very practical geographical reasons. Yeah. Now, let, you mentioned Taiwan, and, you know, I've read a handful of histories of Taiwan, and mm-hmm. as, as I better understand Taiwan, China's historical claim to Taiwan is it, it's not factual. Taiwan is has never been an integrated part of China. You know, there's I've you know, you read the er, the you know, the the Manchu when the Manchu dynasty was there, they claimed Taiwan was, you know, was not a part of the territory. They saw it as, you know, barbarians and foreigners and but yet Xi Jinping now claims that, you know, Taiwan is this long historic part this breakaway province of China and you know as you know better than most i mean the the taiwanese language isn't even you know really specifically the same language as as mainland china speaks it it has its own dialect it has its own language i mean it's not completely different or anything but it's distinct and unique can can you talk more about the history of Taiwan and sort of these cultural differences and how the Taiwanese people think of themselves? Okay. So um, time is not on China's side when it comes to Taiwan because the Taiwanese, whatever associations they had with mainland China are weaker and weaker with each successive generation. So the, um, the Taiwanese language is uh, pretty much from people who migrated from Fujian province so they call it Minanyu, which is Southern Min dialect. So what is spoken in Fujian is very similar to what is spoken in Taiwan. And also there's a, uh, other groups uh, in parts of Malaysia and all that speak that similar dialect. They call it Hokkien. Uh, but the um, need for uh, chi- Taiwan is basically because... T- for China to project beyond their immediate, say, coastline, they have to actually get a hold of Taiwan because uh, to then move beyond that to places like Okinawa. Because historically, countries, if you want to call it a previous, not part of Japan, but Okinawa used to be its own kingdom, and it was part of a, a tributary under the Ming Dynasty. And so there's gonna there's a game plan here. They need to liberate Taiwan from whomever, from the Americans or the the, the renegade Guomindang. And then once they liberate that country, then they will go on to liberate a place like Okinawa. So over time, they would like to probably isolate a country like Japan as much as possible so that they're pretty much non-existent or just a tiny little blip on the map. And they're working for on they're working on these um, kind of um, autonomous uh, independence movements, not just in Okinawa, but even in Hawaii. And in Kashmir, where they have interests as well. Um, And it's funny how the Chinese, one thing they're able to do is unify groups who normally don't get along. So they've in some ways united the Democrats and Republicans here over issues related to China. And then they've they've, um, 
in some ways brought together Pakistan and India on the issues of Kashmir, where China claims Kashmir is being part of its own historical territory. And even now that they're sending, um, Chinese are migrating to Kashmir. Apparently there's about um, like uh, 8% or more of the population over there are Chinese. So they're um, continually expanding and it's not just Taiwan. It's just a one step, one piece of just continually to broaden out, broaden out, broaden out. Yeah. And, and do the Taiwanese think of themselves? Cause if, if you look at the part of the population, you've had yeah. displaced peoples that were sort of essentially driven out of China. You've had Europeans, you've there's indigenous Taiwanese. I mean, the first president of a, you know, essentially a democratic Taiwan was ethnically Taiwanese. Chen Shui Ban was, you know, it was Taiwanese. And and then you've had, you know, this history of Taiwan that does not comport with, you know, the history of, of China. Do the Taiwanese see themselves as, you know, and after the, you know, Chang was defeated and he took these masses of of mainland Chinese to Taiwan and sort of impose their rule over the native peoples. That's sort of when Taiwan became more Chinese was during this very brief period. And then now it's sort of looking more Taiwanese again. Mm-hmm. How do the people see themselves? And then as they look to mainland China and the CCP and, and she, you know, apparently she here recently told uh, President Biden that, you know, he'll take Taiwan back one way or another. Uh, how are the Taiwanese sort of looking at the situation and, and what are their aspirations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, right. It's interesting you mentioned that when the Guomingdang, when the soldiers came over to um, main, from mainland China to Taiwan, the local Taiwanese saw that sort of as an unwel- they were unwelcome visitors and most of those who came over, they were single men. They didn't come over with families and things. So now you have this sudden influx of um, poor single men uh, invading their shores. And it took a long time for that group of people to integrate. So they were called, um, for the longest time, they were called Waishengren. These were people who um, had kind of direct connections to mainland China. But now, like... Fast forward to the present, that distinction who's like local Taiwanese or who's a, who's a Waishengren is less um, less obvious now through intermarriage. And, you know, as, as time goes by, there's just less and less association of having ever been or being a part of mainland China. When I taught university in Taiwan, I had a lot of students from mainland China. And the mainland Chinese students who they weren't in Taiwan very long, but they already came to their conclusions that yes, Taiwanese are exactly like us. And I asked them this, this was a conversation directly in the classroom. I said, I said, really, let me ask your Taiwanese classmates a question. And I asked the Taiwanese, I said, who do you like more Japan or China? And the Taiwanese students, they, for the most part, Taiwanese have positive um, views on Japan. Whereas um, in mainland China, they're taught to like hate Japan. So that's just a very basic thing. Like, if you say you guys are the same, then why is it that the people in Taiwan fear people from China more than people from Japan? Uh, and there's a lot of other things, too. Like, you mentioned the elections. Uh, 
it, it was interesting to see like during election time, because the Taiwanese are very enthusiastic. There's all kinds of parades and all kinds of lots of noise and they really get into it. And the mainland students in Taiwan, I think, were kind of fascinated by that whole process of seeing this. Um, what is essentially eth- Taiwanese are, for the most part, ethnically Chinese. Um, but seeing these ethnic Chinese group of people um, like get into democracy and like actually a, it's possible for Chinese to be democratic. It's not like it's not in the DNA to be democratic. So that I saw a lot of um, attention to that they gave to the elections more so than I had even been giving to the elections. So is, is that one of the reasons that she has to essentially crush Taiwan is because if you look, if the Chinese people, mainland Chinese people look at Taiwan and they say, Hey, wait a second, they're free. They've got free press. There's no totalitarian leadership. They're wealthy. You don't have to have the Chinese communist party to be wealthy. They're even wealthier without it. Uh, And, you know, why are we tolerating this? Why do we tolerate social scores and why do we tolerate surveillance? And why do we, is, does she need to essentially put that to an end so that the Chinese people don't look to Taiwan as, as a model and example? I'm not sure how much of that message would actually be um, portrayed back to mainland China. Uh, Obviously all the news there is, is heavily filtered and skewed. So if they do, if they were to show anything of you say U S democracy to the Chinese public or Taiwan democracy to the Chinese public, it would be the ugly side of democracy. So uh, Taiwan's parliament has had like plenty of bar barroom brawls since the nineties with people throwing chairs and it can actually look real ugly um, democracy. So whatever, um, whatever attraction there is for democracy, I'm sure that could be offset with other propaganda. So I'm not, I'm not sure how much of like a threat Taiwan being democratic is seen in the eyes of, say, the CCP. Um, but what is what is more a threat for them is, as I mentioned earlier, it's time, and it's time for a number of reasons because of their demographics. Uh, they're getting their populations getting a lot older very quickly, and they are, there's this 30 million plus male male to females in um, the country because of all the. Um, the abortions that happened during the one child policy that were heavily skewed towards aborting girls. So now you have all these men and um, contrary to what some people would have you believe men actually don't have babies and Chinese men can't have babies. And so um, you're just going to have fewer and the women who are like able to have babies, fewer and fewer want to have them. And the ones who do don't want more than one child. So this country is going to get very old, very fast. And on top of that, they're going through a, a tremendously um, difficult economic trial with the, this whole system sort of collapsing right as we speak with um, foreign direct investment becoming like disappearing quickly, um, exports disappearing, and then their own domestic economy that depended heavily on construction, on local investment crumbling, like literally and figuratively crumbling they really don't have um, anything good going for them in terms of waiting things out. The only 
advantage maybe that they would have with time would be um, give them more time for a quicker military buildup because they are doing that very fast and they're hardening their their bases, their naval bases, their their air force bases all along the coastline. So they're definitely digging down for a fight. So that's the only thing that may be in their favor. But even then, that's not completely in their favor because the U.S. is also working towards building up on our end. So it's kind of like, are we should we do this now or should we wait a couple more years before we actually pull the trigger? And then one final thing on time is um, Xi Jinping. He's already 80 years old. So wait a second. I thought sorry, he was I'm like 70. He's 70. I apologize. Okay. He's 70 okay. years old. But um, th- that's Biden, who's 80. Um, but he's he's 70. Putin's 71. And I mean, if these guys have any plans to for legacy, they're going to have to do it pretty soon, right? They don't. I don't think they want to start these big plans when they're in their 80s. I think they probably like to see 80 as when it's done, done and over with. And then going back, sorry, quickly to Xi. It's not really just Xi. It's this is a long term. This has been going on for a long time in the Communist Party and the goal of the China of China and back to was that 2005 the anti-succession law so china has always been tightening the screws and turning up the hot water on taiwan this didn't start with xi jinping he's just continuing with the program that was already in place before he he even came to power yeah now it's that time in the show where we have to take a quick break so when we get back i want you to talk about you mentioned that China wants to be a global hegemon. Could you go into a little more detail about where they see themselves, how they see their place in the world? What is the legitimacy that would underscore their leadership in the world? How do they, you know, what is their sense of self? So you're listening to Nuclecast, and we'll be right back. The ANWA Deterrence Center and Nuclecast team joins the Exchange Monitor in inviting you to the 16th Annual Nuclear Deterrence Summit, January 31st through February 2nd at the Weston, Washington, D.C. Go to our website at anwadeter.org to register and receive a 15% discount. We look forward to seeing you there. And we're back and we're talking to Alex Littlefield about China. And, you know, I gave you a question before the break. So I'll turn it over to you. I I really enjoyed living in Taiwan and China and it's because of, say, Chinese people. And I'd like to ask some random questions. And one random question I'd like to ask is, um, what was your favorite dynasty? And one, one sort of kind of conclusion I've come to is, for, if a foreigner was to say his or her favorite Chinese dynasty, we tend to say the Tang dynasty. And Chinese recognize that too. They say, yeah, foreigners tend to like the Tang dynasty. That's probably when it was the most, say, cosmopolitan, had the most interaction with the outside world, um, very much what, you know, she is hearkening back to with, uh, you know, the um, Idai Lu, the Belt and Road system, or the, used to be called One Belt, One Road, and now the... Um, I forgot the new term now. They've changed the name. Yeah. Um, what? Sorry, the term escapes me. But they, but when you actually, when you talk to Chinese and they say what their favorite dynasty was, it was the Ming dynasty. 
And the Ming was a very Chinese dynasty, and that's where they had a lot of these tributary states and all of that kind of stuff. And one of those tributary states was a country called Liocho, or a kingdom called Liocho, which was the Ryukyu kingdom, which was Okinawa. And, you know, the Americans are so focused on Taiwan, but I think the Chinese already have, they've had their eyes on Okinawa for a long time. So we need to probably think of a contingency around Okinawa because, because all the focus is on Taiwan and we're planning on bringing things down from, from Okinawa to help out in Taiwan. But I suspect Okinawa won't even be there as an option when they do take Taiwan. Yeah. And so how do you think that the Chinese see their role? I mean, do they, you know, do they believe in the mandate of heaven still? Is that, uh, you know, do they see themselves? Is it a hierarchical system like it used to be with tributary states? What do they want? What does that look like? Yeah. So that's, um, I guess I was saying it in an indirect way, but yeah, by liking the Ming empire, they want something like that. But for the, but for the, you know, 21st or the, you know, the 21st century and where you have these places that are now under the influence of, say, other powers, let's say for the sake of argument from their perspective, let's say the hegemon United States is, you know, impressing Taiwan, oppressing Okinawa together with the Japanese. These places need to be liberated. But once they're liberated, liberated to what? Of course, liberated to being out um cesarean states of china you know now we're going to bring in you know thank you for liberating us here's um and now thank you for keeping us peace uh was a set of a pax americana it would be a pax sino seneca pax seneca so we um want to just show you our gratitude and bring you tributes and you know and yeah. reign over us in your great wisdom and is your was has always been your historical right as like under heaven. Yeah. So that's a very old and traditional view that uh, it, it seems. And when it comes to the Chinese communist party, what makes them this legitimate sort of heir to the emperor's throne? What, why, why do they, and do, do the Chinese people buy it that, that, you know, the emperor was, for his time, but now, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party and the, the chairman and, you know, the president, uh, that they're the rightful heirs now? Is is that a view that's held by many Chinese or is that not a view or is that just imposed by the, the CCP itself? There's a tendency to um, be critical of authoritarian regimes and then to say, well, they don't represent the people because they weren't democratically elected. But at the same time, whatever political system a country ends up with, that is more or less because of the citizens of that country. So for better or worse, this is the political system that China has. And as far as I know, everyone in that system are Chinese. And this they, they came up from one way or the other from within Chinese society. So this is probably the best representative government that the Chinese have of themselves. Now that's hard to accept because they are very authoritarian and they are very mean to their own people. But this has also been the case throughout most of pretty much all of Chinese history. You know, one emperor to another, they weren't exactly um, looking out for human rights of their citizens. So it's kind of consistent model that 
we've seen throughout the history. Of course, the difference here is it's not hereditary by blood. You know, it was like, it was given a sort of a modern twist under the banner of Marxism. But what China seeks is not really sort of a proletariat um, utopian world order under, like, say, Marxist principles. Of course, what they want is something that's extraordinarily nationalistic, which, you know, in some circles you might interpret as fascism. But again, I mean, where do you go with this? Because, okay, so now it's Marxist fascist. Like, if you get these terms that I guess don't really, it's like oil and water that don't quite mix, but actually, in practicality, what we see is a very mercantile China that has its little colonies and getting its resources, natural resources from all over parts of the world while it um, while it tries to return finished goods and all that. So it's political economy. The way it operates is very much an imperial mercantile type system, precisely what it is in theory opposed against, but what it actually does in reality. So it would, whatever you want to label that world empire with China at the head, that's what they want, a world empire with China at the head, whatever you want to call it, suit yourself. But that's the key is that it's under their control, under their authority. And that, yes, that would more or less be what Chinese citizens would agree with. Because if you go to China, like who doesn't want a strong China who's from China, right? Or who doesn't want Taiwan to be a part of China who's from China? They're not going to say, oh, no, China, they really need their independence. I don't know why our government, the CCP, keeps giving the people of Taiwan a hard time. No, they'd be on they'd be on board with that. Taiwan is a renegade province. It should be a part of China. Japan is bad. If Japan is weak, we're strong. That's a good thing. So I'd say all in all, for the most part, um, the Chinese people, of course, there's going to be exceptions. But all in all, the, the general populace would be on board with Xi Jinping's program. You don't see a sort of a strong strand across society, the political elites or anywhere, this sort of Western liberalism that could potentially, you know, influence, you know, Chinese policy and maybe rise to take over the system and liberalize the system and, you know, transition to democracy. None of, none of that is, is that, is there anything like that in, in China or is that just sort of a Western pipe dream that, that we had and thought might take place? And then is it just for those who are sort of unindoctrinated into Chinese history, culture, thinking that you would have always known was never possible? Yeah, I'd say it's pretty much a Western pipe dream, and it's not anything specific to China. I'd say this would be true for all of East Asia, including Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, China, and others. They always saw this system that, if we want to call it the Washington Consensus or capitalism or free market, open trade, they never, none of those countries have really embraced it. So this isn't specific to China. They saw it as an opportunity to, you know, sell us finished goods so that they could use that in turn to buy resources that were scarce, right? Energy resources in primarily. So, um, yeah, they never, they never, no one was ever about to embrace it the same as, say, the Americans, because we were the ones who had all the IP. We were the ones who had everything and we um, wanted cheaply made products, but we wanted to hold on to the intellectual property, but 
we already know, like, as I say, rest is history because um, that kind of went down the drain. Now, it's that time in the show where I like to bring out Bob. And if I rub Bob's magic lamp and Bob grants, he pops out as he always does. And he grants all guests three wishes, but they have to be related to the topics we've been discussing. So Alex, let me ask you, what is wish number one that you want Bob to grant you? For me? Well, for the topics we're discussing, but world peace and wealth, of course, that's out. I would like for people in the field of IR. International relations. Right. To actually be relevant and to stop um, kidding themselves that we need like these um, guardrails and we need like baselines with China because that's only something that's important to people from the West. China does not care a thing for that and never will. And by spending so much energy and talk and ink over these types of topics, they're just, they're just um, yelling to themselves in a crowded room of like-minded people while actually something completely different is going on in the world outside of that room. Yeah. Okay. So that's a, that's a good wish. How about wish number two? Wish number two would be um, for China to be a strong and great country, but to do it without resorting to kinetic force. Yeah. Okay. Strong and great country, no force. How about wish number three? Um, Wish number three. Sorry, I can't think of one. Would you wish, would you have any wish for the system of government in China? Or do you think that's a wish even Bob can't grant? That's something that could happen, but it's going to take time. It takes many generations. And I think um, you go back to 1911 and to the Republican Revolution. I think that actually set things back. It didn't move things forward. If, um, if, Things had not. Ha- I think revolution is always generally a setback instead of just letting things transpire more naturally, uh, because you don't know what kind of chaos you get that comes out of a revolution. Even now, let's say if the CCP was overthrown, there's no reason to assume it's going to be something better. Look at the Soviet Union. So finally, yeah. the evil Soviet Union collapsed. Right now, do we have an angel in Putin in the current system? No. So. I'm not going to necessarily wish for the downfall of the CCP because I don't know what comes after that. But I, that's why I'm kind of sticking with the second wish, which is just that whatever they do, that is not kinetic, that there's no blood spilled and that, that um, I guess this might be wish number three, that while they um, are very much for supporting autonomy of like places like Okinawa and Hawaii, they would be more aware of their own double standards by not allowing Taiwan to have its autonomy and a bunch of other places I won't even mention because we all know those places, but um, that's going to like open a whole nother can of worms. So if, if we're, you know, cause we're at the end of the show, if you want to leave the listeners with something to walk away with, 
to keep in their minds six months from now, a year from now, what would you want them to know and understand about China, Taiwan, you know, the future? What would that be? There's some debate on the inevitability of an invasion of Taiwan. Now, if IR scholars were to say it's inevitable, then they'd basically be saying we're out of a job and now we all need to start working for the military. So there's this bias to say, of course, it's not inevitable. Of course, we can talk our way out of this mess. But um, I'd say it is inevitable, which is why we really need to be thinking very hard and clear about how are we going to prepare for that on our end. And the best thing we can do as, say, um, in terms of preventing war is to deter. And if we're going to deter China, we need to show that we actually, we actually can cause them some pain if they do decide to hit us hard in Guam and Okinawa and anywhere around Taiwan, that it's going to come at a very heavy cost. Because at this point, I think the cost for China is becoming less and less and it's higher and higher for us. And we need to, we need to um, rebalance that equation. Otherwise we're going to be living in a, in a world where um, we're not going, we're still going to be speaking English. Don't worry, people, we're not all going to learn Chinese, but um, we're not going to be living in the world that we're talking about. Of the, as of the day of the recording of this podcast. Yeah. And, and I'll ask one final question before I should have asked this earlier. And that is what's your take on Taiwan, either building an indigenous nuclear weapons program or the United States putting American nuclear weapons on Taiwan for, you know, largely for the purpose of deterring a, a, PLA attack. How, how do you see that? It's um, so first is, uh, you know, going back in time and kind of regretting the mistakes we made to begin with, because um, Taiwan did have its own indigenous program. And, you know, we should have let South Korea, T- Taiwan, and probably even Japan work out their own programs. But we've said, no, don't do that. We're going to be your, we're going to be your umbrella of defense. But then we haven't been living up to that very well because we've let our own nuclear stockpiles just kind of um, kind of wither away. So we um, kept them from getting weapons and now we ourselves don't really have anything of that's um, tremendous value. So to me, it seems like a little almost like too little too late and it might be used as a pretext for China to make an attack. So it'd be much better if these were in the situation. But okay, the reality is now we are in this situation. So what do we do about it? That's a really hard question because um, there's because of the risk. But I would you know, we could have conditions like, hey, look at all these tests that North Korea is doing now. Right. They they can hit us now every I think they can even hit Florida now. So. China's not doing anything to stop, you know, DPRK from testing. We say, look, these things continue. We just have to, you know, allow, or we do it if there, we can, we can maybe do it secretly. I don't know, but there's just a lot more. There's a lot going on besides um, that. So it's just a frightening world we live in, in terms of nuclear war with the bombs pointing towards us and us not really putting up much of a fight in return. All right, Alex Littlefield. Thanks for joining us on this episode of NucleCast. Yeah, thank you very much, and happy holidays. Yeah, same to you. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode, and we will see you next time. What can I say? Uh, It's a lot to think about. I mean, 
when Alex says, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed whenever I've been writing uh, on China, I'll run my articles by Alex just to sort of get his take because his, you know, 20 plus years of living in Taiwan and China, he's always has things that I was just like, man, I hadn't thought of that. And so he has such a unique perspective that is always better than my own. And so to hear him talk, it was, you know, it's, it's really always informative. And I appreciated, you know, when he said, Hey, it's, it's not a matter of if it's when I, I tend to think he's not being hyperbolic that it's, that it's actually, we, we might, you know, it's like Houston, we have a problem. And so I, I found the, the discussion interesting. Hopefully you did as well. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.